This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Casey Coleman. Casey is currently the Senior Vice President for Digital Transformation for Global Public Sector at Salesforce. Casey leads and drives the Salesforce Global Enterprise Positioning and Solutions Strategy for Public Sector in Government. She has a successful track record of building, leading, developing go-to-market strategies for government in both the government and in private industry. So Casey, first, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Eileen. I'm glad to be here. So, Casey, I got to ask you about leadership during these times. Uh, what a challenging time for mm. all of us, right? I mean, yeah. with, with the current threat of COVID-19 and all the other uh, issues that are looming right now, what does leadership, from your perspective, look like during times of crisis like we're experiencing today? Well, I think we see examples of it all over the place. It's just, there's, there's a lot of stories about challenges in uh, this pandemic, but there's a lot of heartening stories about public servants coming together to do the right thing with with a lot of constraints and headwinds and yet uh, overcoming those and and making amazing things happen. So I I really think that a lot of those success stories inform leadership in not only crisis, but in this new phase of of life and the world we're we're living in. if you look at sort of management practices, um, historically it was sort of a command and control kind of top-down industrial sort of model. But in an, in a knowledge economy, when everything is connected, it's really about creating an environment where smart people can do good work. So it's about equipping people, empowering them, um, making sure that their voice is heard, and giving them room to to do the right things and to make you know make quick progress. So there are certain types of characteristics or uh, qualities that you find in leaders. Um, are, is there some specific ones that you think are really needed for stressful times like we're experiencing today, in like communications or, you know, the type of leadership? Yeah, I think that it's about um, creating an environment where you can come together quickly. Generally in government, it is kind of a top-down model. Things move slowly. There's a lot of approvals. There's a lot of process steps and bureaucracy. But when you've got to make decisions quickly, you've kind of got to move past that. And so one thing that, that we've seen work and that, that I've used in the past is a, a nerve center or a command center where you bring people together who have different competencies, but you've got everyone in the room to make a decision. And so you can, maybe not literally in the room because that's not the way we're working right now, but figuratively, so that you can uh, you know, socialize the situation, you can get a common understanding, you can parcel out actions, and then you can go make things happen. So uh, the ability to cut across organizational lines, make decisions quickly, get common understanding and, and take action is one thing that's uh, proving to be a really valuable approach. So I, I saw an interesting post you did on LinkedIn, and it was about uh, how this could provide leadership, this crisis, an opportunity to actually, um, you know, have change, um, mm-hmm. it, that it was an opportunity. What do you mean by that? Well, in, in normal times, the 
status quo seems acceptable, uh, generally speaking, and in crisis times, it doesn't. So uh, it, you can see all around us where it's created an impetus for change. And it, this has happened across every level of government, at the federal level, at the state level, and municipal level. Um, for example, one of the situations that we've seen recently was with the state of Rhode Island. They um, very quickly, like in the early March timeframe, recognized that this crisis, the COVID outbreak is fast moving and needed a different approach when it comes to a public health situation. So they um, got in touch with us. We worked with them to develop a manual contact tracing system so that their public health workers could very quickly identify where there had been people who had inadvertently been exposed to COVID and help them understand that they had, uh, you know, experienced that exposure they were unaware of and be able to take the right actions to distance themselves or to quarantine or isolate and make sure that they were able to get in front of the outbreak and, and slow it or, or stop it. Um, and they, they did all this in a matter of days or weeks in the normal course of action that would never happen that fast. So at your Salesforce uh, government summit, I read that you had some key leaders tell their mm -hmm. stories about how they, you know, uh, you know, affected change, how they led in a crisis, which I thought was just wonderful. Can you share some of those stories and some of those outcomes? Yeah, another one that's really inspiring is the state of New Mexico. They, uh, like like a lot of states, a lot of people have been put out of work and had to apply for unemployment benefits. And uh, the state of New Mexico experienced a 400% surge in applications for unemployment uh, wow. benefits. I know. And this happened at a time when it's sort of a double whammy, not only did the demand surge, but all the employees who were working in the contact center and answering calls had been sent home. And so they didn't have access to their normal environment to take on those calls and fulfill those benefits. And so you had a, a, real, a real crisis, a human crisis forming, and uh, we were able to work with them and be able to stand up a, a virtual contact center. So it had a cloud-based contact center, it had uh, chat bots that could help with triage and answering frontline questions. And so, in, again, in a matter of, of days, they were able to take that, that surge and meet it and answer questions really in a matter of, uh, I think, what, under a minute on average. So, you know, you turn, you pivot like that is, is truly remarkable. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Casey Coleman. Casey, you know, what are the important decisions you can make as a leader in an organization, whether it's in a crisis or not? Are there different types of decisions? How do you approach them? You know, how do you work with people when you have identified different types of decisions that need to be made? Well, I think it helps if you've thought about these things beforehand and have some foundational principles that you operate by. Um, I have a set of organizational values that I put together a long time ago on a sticky note, and I carry it with me from role to role, and uh, it kind of helps to shape my thinking in, in situations, and I kind of validate that with, with other leaders and other things I hear. Uh, so, you know, just kind of foundational stuff like uh, ethics and integrity in everything we do, and creating a climate of trust so that you assume good intent from the team, and you uh, as I said earlier, create an environment where people can do their best work. I think if you have that foundation, you have sort of the framework for how you approach a situation, then when you can, when you encounter challenging times, you can move quickly because you've already sort of established the, the rules of the road. 
um, an another thing that's a sort of organizational principle I try to always put in place is to do routine things routinely. You know, save the firefighting and save the crisis management for a real crisis and make sure, make sure you've got a, a cadence of operation to support day-to-day -day work that is well honed and just, you know, muscle memory. Do you think decisions should be made by a committee or do you think a leader should just make them? How do you decide how and who makes a decision? <laughs> Go back to my orange sticky note. I think that um, it's really important to create an environment where people can speak freely and to set an expectation that not only are you uh, given the opportunity to speak up, but you have to speak up. Because again, in a, in a knowledge kind of environment, knowledge economy, it's really not the people at the top who have all the good ideas and all the knowledge. It, it comes from the wisdom of people on the ground closest to the situation. So you have to create an environment where that information can flow freely and people don't feel like they're going to be second guessed or, or criticized or, or punished for bringing up uh, either personal observations or bad news or, or whatever that is. So um, if we ask about how, how I like to make decisions, the, the philosophy I have is that everyone should speak up, they should challenge the decision, you should have a debate, and then maybe you can reach a consensus, hopefully so. Uh, that's often the case, you'll have a, a, a consensus, but if not, then the, the leader has to make a decision and then ask everyone to support that decision and save the debate for the next, the next situation. I'm speaking with Casey Coleman, Digital Transformation uh, Vice President of Public Sector at Salesforce. After a break, we'll discuss how to handle the most important decisions and how to make them in good times or in crisis. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Casey Coleman, Vice President of Digital Transformation at Global Public Sector at Salesforce. Now, Casey, I want to take a step back. You are a very strong leader. Um, was there an event or person that inspired you or had a tremendous impact on you as a leader uh, that you are drawing from for your strength today or just every day? I, I love that question, Aileen. I've had so many mentors and so many people who've been kind and thoughtful and helpful to me. But in terms of like a, a motivational catalyst, one of the things that really had a big impact on me was 9-11 and the national recovery effort that took place after that that really motivated me to want to contribute to that sense of purpose and, and recreating both the infrastructure and the economy and the, the lives and, and safety of, of the people affected. And that, that's the time when I moved to Washington and, and got into public service uh, just in an effort to help, help contribute and be part of that. So did you, is there anybody in particular during that time? I remember it. I was in DC too. Uh, and uh, there were so many inspirational figures at that time. Was there anybody in particular, uh, you know, that coming together with, uh, you know, Homeland Security or uh, pulling together, you know, the different, you know, is there, is there somebody who just comes to mind? You know, I, I would have to, have to mention a few GSA leaders who, uh, not only made a big difference in in their in their own way, but also to me personally. Uh, Marty Wagner was a, an executive at GSA when I arrived, and he was really kind to me, a new person who had just moved there from Dallas. And I had flown into uh, D.C. and my furniture was en route two weeks out uh, in an empty apartment. And uh, when he found that out, he said, "Look, let me help you out." He 
loan me some of his family's camping gear, a little folding table and chairs, and I think a cot. And I uh, was just so struck by that kindness of someone, you know, to who was way outranked me and yet took a moment to be thoughtful and nice. And that has, that has stuck with me. And I've taken that as a philosophy, you know, it's a small town, it's a small industry and you should strive to be, strive to be kind and empathetic to people as much as possible. Truly a great leadership quality. What accomplishment are you most proud of that you were able to lead your team during your career in, in public sector? Oh, a couple of things come to mind. I've had the opportunity to oversee some, some real challenges and some successes. And one that comes to mind as a, as a success was just the, the, the move to the cloud. Uh, one of the key management and technology priorities uh, when the Obama administration took, took office was about cloud first. Uh, you remember the cloud first policy. And I had the opportunity to work with the CIO council and a bunch of agency leaders from across government to put together what that looks like. Um, how, do you, how do you buy cloud services? How do you secure them? How do you, what's that operating model? And what does that partnership with the cloud provider look like? Uh, we put together a lot of um, really foundational um, capabilities that I think are still serving the government well. Uh, the FedRAMP uh, cloud security protocols, uh, the, even the definition of cloud computing with infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, uh, those those core tenants came out of that work in that CIO council leadership. So I feel so lucky to have had a chance to to be there at a moment when technology really took a shift in a way that I think is pretty fundamental for government and for for business in general. And still still making a fundamental difference every day. Mm-hmm. You know that's a pretty big adoption, a big change. Um, is there something that you wish you knew or could have done different? Sometimes our greatest lessons are sometimes the opportunity to make a mistake and then, and then figure out how to fix it. Yeah. Wow. What do I wish I'd known that there's probably a a long list there, but um, I would maybe go a little bit further back to an early project that I had uh, in my time at GSA. This was in, I was um, in in a, in a a different role, IT leader in one of the component organizations. And we were, uh, rolling out a very large system. This was in sort of the pre-cloud days and at the point in time where you were, you know, doing long projects that would take a couple of years and have a big launch at the end of it. And of course, we're not doing that now. We're doing agile, quick, iterative development. But this this project had been underway for like three years and I was taking it over right about the point they were going to turn it on. And I had been assured that all I had to do was just celebrate. <laughs> but it turns out there were some really fundamental gaps in the whole construct of that project and it it became clear that it was not going to go as planned and i had to unpack that and figure out what had what what assumptions had been made that we needed to rethink could we save it did we need to go in a different direction and when you think when i think about what i could have done differently i think at the time i just didn't know what i didn't know and i i I think I would have acted with a little more speed. It took us about a year to figure it out. And we ultimately um, ultimately rolled it back. We decided that it had some really fundamental issues that we just were better off not trying to patch, but just start with a, a clean approach. But uh, I, I wish I'd been able to move faster because that was a, a, a time consuming and kind of expensive lesson. But I, I will say I learned that lesson and didn't repeat that issue after that. Well, let me turn it around. Now that you've been in private sector, 
for a while. Um, anything you're most proud of or any lessons learned that you, any aha moments to transition from leadership from public sector to private sector? Yeah, I think everybody ought to spend time on both sides of the table because I just have such a, I think a more well-informed perspective. I have, I hope a lot of empathy and respect for the roles of government leaders. They're doing hard jobs uh, without anywhere near the resources or the credit and recognition that they should get for the really fabulous work they do. Um, I think that I'm really proud of doing work uh, I hope in my government career and, and here in public sector now that really has a material and positive impact on how government, like the business of government, the, the way government functions, um, bringing technology to help with the real human side of it, like disaster response and helping families in need and supporting home ownership and supporting a better quality of life for the public. And uh, it, I mean, it, it sounds um, fanciful, but it, but it's true. I feel like I can see you know, a line of sight between what I've done, what others, you know, the team has done and the outcomes that have benefited people. Is there anything that you wish all private sector leaders could better understand to better work with government officials and helping them reach these very important missions that they're trying to achieve? You know, I think on both sides, just a willingness to kind of listen and understand the other point of view. You know, I talked about my core organizational values, and one of them is to strive for win-win outcomes. Um, I think almost everything in life involves some kind of negotiation and some kind of consensus building, whether it's industry and government or whether it's, you know, even within government, you've got to build consensus. That's a core government leadership principle. And so I think if you can approach it with a win-win outcome and think about it as a way to get to the core of what everyone agrees on and start from there uh, rather than starting from your individual corners and kind of approaching the situation with a, uh, you know, an oppositional framework, but approaching it with more of a, a partnering framework. I just think that, that that benefits everyone. You get to better outcomes faster. So you've, you've been a uh, command or, or a leader of some pretty big projects we were just talking about, for an example, that really led change. Uh, change can be a pretty big challenge. Uh, you know, there's lots of obstacles to mostly include um, cultural. Mm -hmm. How did you keep your team focused on doing something? And, and some of those things were, at, in the beginning, believed impossible. How do you keep them focused on on achieving this mission, even when the odds are kind of against them? Yeah, well, I think first of all, you have to prioritize. Um, not everything can be a priority. And sometimes it feels like it is, especially in government where you, you come to work in the morning and, and just priority after priority kind of all come at you at the same time. But you do have to determine what, what are the three things that I've got to get done. and 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 just make a conscious decision. That's the A work and then everything else is the B work. And maybe you're, you can't stick to that plan, but that's where you have to start. And then also th go back to building consensus, figuring out who else that you have to coordinate with has, has got a similar point of view and can be an ally because you can't make very many decisions or very much progress only by yourself. You've got to open up that circle and um, get not only the you know, the coordinating organizations, but kind of understand where real authority lies and who the informal decision makers are. 
and make sure that you pay attention to kind of that informal network that you really need for success. I'm speaking with Casey Coleman, Digital Transformation Global Public Sector Vice President Salesforce. Coming up, we'll talk about the changing notion of women leadership during the pandemic. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. And today I'm talking with Casey Coleman, Vice President of the Digital Transformation Global Public Sector Salesforce. So I recently, Casey, read an article in Harvard Business Review, and it said, countries with women leadership have suffered six times fewer confirmed deaths from COVID-19 than countries with governments led by men. Well, <laughs> these, I mean, I, that was, I mean, it was an Amazing, fascinating. Amazing. <laughs> well, these positive outcomes influence our collective readiness to elect more women in government leadership positions. What do you think? I, I think so. I, you know, diversity in general leads to better outcomes. And certainly it, it, it's not just about women leaders, but it's about different viewpoints, diverse viewpoints. And I also think going back to my earlier comment about how management has changed, everything is so connected. Everything is so interrelated that the, the era of like the lone leader who is the hero, like, I don't know, a Roman general or something, that kind of isn't a model that you can apply very effectively now. Um, maybe in some specialized places, but in general, our times favor collaborative consensus building, interrelated, uh, you know, bringing, bringing like viewpoints together to take action. And I think um, whenever you generalize, you risk the, the possibility of overgeneralizing, but I think in, uh, as a, maybe a fair characterization, women tend to be good at that. So, um, so I hope so. Well, these are pretty amazing deltas and a positive data point in support of women leaders. I got to tell you that, but I can point to some related findings in private sector too. Companies who have had three or more women on their board uh, in 2011 grew their earnings per share much faster over the next five years than all more male boards. Um, there was another research uh, study by MCI ESG research in 2016 uh, that also provided more data points in that direction. Do you think that women, you know, you mentioned that women have a tendency to be more collaborative, but do you think women approach leadership in a different way uh, that really, you know, changes that outcome? What, what can we learn from that? I certainly think, well, I think the, the easy answer is yes, but I also think it's the mix and it's, um, Women have been historically kind of underrepresented at the senior most level. So I think bringing uh, or intentionally thinking about diversity, thinking about women as part of your core leadership strategy is going to result in, you know, you're, you've got to start with an, the intention in order to create the outcome. And so being intentional about your board mix, being intentional about your senior leadership track programs is going to, to produce those outcomes that have more diversity, that bring more of a, uh, the competencies that women might be stronger in. And, and I've got to say that that's one of the things I love about being at Salesforce is we have very diverse leadership, very diverse board, and it's a real intentional part of our company and culture. And I think it shows in, in the way that we approach our customers in our market. I think we look more like our customers think more like them because we have more of a mix that resembles them. I really like what you're saying there. Uh, you, you, what you're saying is diversity really gives that 
a greater view of different perspectives, which allows all of them to be evaluated to pick the best. Yeah, and I think that the, I think the government is actually pretty good at this, thinking about diversity, thinking about uh, creating leadership opportunities for the, the broad mix of, of backgrounds that people bring. Uh, certainly a focus of mine, and um, I, I think if you look at the proportion of women in senior executive roles in the government, it's, it's really not that bad. It's like a quarter at the senior most levels. At least that was the last statistic that I saw. And I think that compares really favorably with industry as a whole. So I think you've got to give the government credit for having been really out in front on this. More work to do as, as with all of us, though. In the last segment, we, we talked about change. And as you mentioned before, times of crisis historically have been opportunities for change. Are you optimistic that we'll emerge from this um, and could be a chance to find more effective ways to run organizations to even maybe even run the federal government? Well, I'm always an optimist, Aileen. I'm optimist about everything. And so, I, yes, I actually think that we are seeing a lot of change already. And, and again, because there's an accelerated pace, there's a sense of urgency, there is a real crisis that has to be answered. We're going to see new approaches. Uh, we're already seeing pivots with, uh, you know, using technology differently, thinking differently about organizational models and communication models, um, looking at analytics and artificial intelligence as a way to inform our action and, and listening to the data and not just going on kind of intuition and what worked last time. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, trends that I think, um, you know, it's still an open question, but I'm, I'm really optimistic. So let me, the change in, in the way that we work, the leverage of technology, um, clearly we're going to be uh, working much more uh, remotely and mm -hmm. uh, we need to ensure that large scale telework and a plan for a more effective organizational communication structure is gonna change the way we lead. Do you think we need to rethink the way our work environment? If so, how would you, how would you lead that? I believe it all starts with culture. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, about how culture trumps strategy. Um, you've got to be really intentional about culture. And it's even more important when you are not face-to-face -face every day to, you know, kind of naturally connect with people. So you've got to connect around cultural touchstones. And that's, I, I think, the starting point. So let's, uh, let's go back to... Uh, you know, the, what is the relationship between uh, leadership and culture and how does that leadership affect our culture? Because does a leader come in and create culture or, or you know, how can a leader affect culture? How does leadership not affect culture? Well, I think that's a great question because first of all, you have to understand what the existing culture is. And it's not just, when we say culture, I, I'm thinking about a, a lot of different elements, including how are decisions made? Um, who, who gets listened to? What does the informal org chart look like? Not just the formal org chart. Um, what does the organization value? What do they celebrate? And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from when I was at GSA. You know, GSA provides business services to the rest of government. And so they, they place a premium on understanding uh, developments in the marketplace so that they can provide good service and advice to other agencies that they work with. And so they're very open to um, trying new things. And so uh, we've, we, they have used that successfully in a lot of cases. And, and 
in some of the situations I was involved in, we had the opportunity to try new things and kind of try to align with that culture and say, hey, this is going to help us not only operate better internally, but help us fulfill our mission better. And anytime you can do that, you can connect with the mission, you can connect with what motivates people to be there and serve, then you're then you're bringing up the culture and you're, you're taking advantage of what's best about it. What do you think is aftermath of COVID-19? What do you think the biggest challenge for the government executives in the aftermath of this crisis? You know, this is a multifaceted crisis, Eileen. It's not just a, a health crisis. There's also an economic crisis with uh, so many people being out of work. And then also on the government side, you know, a lot of governments, organizations, especially at the state and municipal level, are funded by things like sales taxes and income taxes. And those things are down because of the you know, general economic you know, activity levels that have been, been down. So I think we're gonna to have to see people being very resourceful about what they're gonna, how they're gonna prioritize and what's gonna bring the biggest impact for the very scarce resources that they've got. So I, I just think being really smart about investments and being smart about leveraging not only technology, but also the, all resources in a way that provides the biggest ROI. I think that very practical kind of uh, aspect and prioritization is going to be top of mind. Now you lead the strategy for Salesforce worldwide public sector. Are you going to um, suggest to, to alter your current strategies post uh, COVID-19? Well, we're trying to think of, um, you know, in our customer, we're trying to put ourselves in our customers' shoes and, and think about what, what concerns them. Um, you know, one of the things that's been a, a surprise to everyone is how important things like contact tracing have been. We talked about Rhode Island. We're working with over 35 states on COVID-related responses, including contact tracing, which is, you know, a public health practice that's been around for a long time and used in other countries for things like smallpox and malaria. But being able to bring technology to it has helped to get in front of the, the health outbreak and, and maybe slow it down. But then there's going to be other waves of activity. You know, at some point we're going to have a vaccine, and how do we distribute that? How do we track who has received it, and then make sure that people in the greatest categories of need are the ones who are prioritized to receive the vaccine? Um, things like um, how do you manage employees? We just what we were talking about a minute ago. When everyone is remote, how do you keep people motivated and focused? How do you keep them engaged so that they can do good work and not be distracted by the, the chaos of the crisis? All of these things, I think, are trends for government leaders to think about, and we're trying to be thoughtful about our position and how we can be of help. Now, obviously, none of us could have seen this coming, or at least at the, this magnitude. Anything you wish uh, that could have been prioritized to help organizations like yours or any your past government agencies to help prepare? Well, I go back to a couple of things I mentioned before. One of them is kind of just coming to the table with an open mind. Um, one, one observation I've had since moving from government to private sector is that a lot of times, and it's, it's not as common as it used to be, but you'll see procurements which are just kind of a like for like, you know, this is what we had, we need a new, you know, that contract's coming to an end, let's put that back out there and compete it again. And you'll get the same thing you got if you're asking for the same things you asked for. And so I think 
one of the things that we used successfully in, in, in moving to the cloud uh, during my time in government was just a simple use of a statement of objectives versus a statement of work. We were kind of define the outcomes we were looking for rather than the inputs that we wanted the vendor to bring. So I, I just think kind of being a little bit more tuned to commercial developments, being more tuned to innovation or different approaches that industry can bring will result in, in kind of richer dialogue, better preparation, faster ability to act, more innovation and better outcomes. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Casey Coleman, Vice President of Digital Transformation at Global Public Sector Salesforce. Next, we'll find out what's Casey's advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking to Casey Coleman, Digital Transformation uh, Vice President, Global Public Sector Salesforce. Now, Casey, um, I've heard you refer to yourself as a natural evangelist. What do you mean by that? I, <laughs> well, I think that, um, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think everything in life is about building understanding, building connections, building consensus, um, putting yourself in the other person's shoes, um, being empathetic, um, and, and that evangelizing is the ability to tell a story and to kind of engage people and, and create a vision together. And uh, so I, I try to focus on storytelling. I try to focus on uh, bringing real examples and real life stories that people can connect with because um, Siri is one thing, but having lived or experienced it or observed it is something totally different and way more persuasive. So uh, earlier you brought up core values and the importance of communicating. Um, you know, having the ability to really provide a vision and a good story to me really helps people be a leaders. What do you think about that? Oh, 100%. Um, everything is about a story. It's about creating an ability for other people to see the same vision or, or to build it together. So I don't think storytelling is, is well enough um, focused on. And especially, you know, we, we deal with such complex subjects in the government, you know, policy issues and uh, strategy issues, and they can feel very dry and remote until you bring them to life. And you know, if you, when you watch the news, you see that they always bring in the person who's affected by that story and they bring it to life. I think that is a good lesson for all of us. So, you know, sharing that core, core values, I find that it's the ripple effect that really makes us mm -hmm. powerful. Um, how do you encourage others in your organizations to communicate the core values? And do you set, you know, do you set time aside to actually make sure that's happening? I try. <laughs> you know, we all suffer from, from calendar overload. Uh, I do try to just block out time on my calendar to, to think and also to um, give, give thought to how, how I'm communicating, also how I'm listening. Because I, I think as much as you communicate it, in more senior roles, I think you have to do more listening, like some factor under three to one is maybe what comes to mind. Because it's, it's only by listening that you have material to formulate into a story and share. So uh, I try to always start by listening and by 
understanding what's really going on and creating an environment where people feel expected to contribute and speak up and, and, and tell their story. You know, during these times where we're all remote and we're using some kind of form of video teleconferencing, how do you make that personal connection to really ensure that you have that empathy and that story transmit, you know, translated to your teams? Is there a best practice you use? Well, I always start by asking people how they're doing. And, and I really want to know. I really want to know, how are you? How's your family? What's happening with you? What's good? Tell me something positive that we can celebrate together. And I, you know, I'm always learning here. I'm not saying I'm the expert, but I do think that connecting with people genuinely and, and connecting with them as people first and then as colleagues or employees second um, just kind of builds trust and connection. And it's, it's, it's the trust you have with your teammates that gets you through challenging times when, you know, like you, you see a, a sports team that everyone knows their position. Everyone knows where the ball is going to be. They know how the play is going to unfold. That's just a beautiful thing. And then, you know, when you see that happen in business or in government, it's also amazing to experience that, that, that flow. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you link, uh, you actually uh, cite collaboration skills as being one of your key attributes. Tell me a little bit about that and tell me how our listeners out there can help improve their collaboration skills. Well, I think one thing that is a, is a core tenant is to always be learning. And I've kind of alluded to this, but the world is changing, technology is changing, and, and even though human nature doesn't change, the way we collaborate, uh, all of that evolves. And so I think we have to be lifetime learners. That's another kind of core value of mine is to, to take responsibility for learning. To have a, um, our, our CEO refers to, the, Mark Benioff refers to this as, this as having a beginner's mind, being open to, uh, to learning from others. And I think when you do that genuinely, you, you create an environment for, for collaboration. Is that the best advice you've gotten from one of your leaders? Or I'm sure there's multiple, but is, is, what, what, is there another one that you'd like to share? Yeah, that is a great one. I use that all the time, have a beginner's mind. Another one that I really like, and this one is a very well-known quote, is from uh, former President Teddy Roosevelt, where he says something to the fact that it's the person who's in the ring who, who really matters, not the people standing on the sidelines criticizing. And that is a, you know, a sports analogy, but it, it's true in, in life and in business and in government that you, you've, you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to do some things that you know, take a chance and, and put you in a position of being out in front on some things before you can have an impact. If you're, um, you know, the people who are kind of second guessing and standing on the sidelines and waiting for, uh, you know, waiting for an opportunity to, to have an opinion about something someone else is doing, um, that's, you know, that's not where the material impact comes. That's not where the mission is, is fulfilled. So I, I take a step back. I, the, the current, you, you're a very empathetic leader. I can actually feel your enthusiasm <laughs> and your commitment. You know, today, uh, you know, when you're working at home and being empathetic to your, your uh, employees, there are all kinds of conditions they're working under. A lot of people are, you, you know, a lot of schools aren't taking kids back, for mm -hmm. example. Do you think this is, uh, in particular for women leaders or or for women out there from a career track perspective, how can we help make sure that it continues to be an equal opportunity 
to all of our employees, no matter what their current situation is at home. You know, everyone is dealing with something and, and you raise a great point. Moms and dads have the extra challenge of their children being at home and trying to oversee their schooling. I'm, I'm not a parent, so it, it's hard for me to even fully appreciate how challenging that is. But, but what I do know is that everyone is dealing with something. Everyone has a, you know, a personal hardship of their own, whether you see it or not. And um, so I think just kind of giving some some space and assume, going back to a point I made earlier about assuming good intent and, and, and having open conversations, you know, uh, if, if you, if you see something, you know, just have a thoughtful conversation about it. There's a way to do that. That's, that's helpful. Um, so those are some of the, the things I try to keep in mind. I do, I do think it's hard for parents right now and uh, probably going to continue to be so going into the fall semester as well. You've had an incredible career, um, you know, a, a tremendous success uh, over your lifetime. If there's a listener out there that would like to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you have for them? I would say take a chance. I think a lot of times the default position is to assume that there's somebody more qualified, assume that there's more preparation you need to do before you can take on the next assignment or take on the next challenge or the next rung on the ladder, but take a chance and, and, and lean into it. And, you know, you'll learn a lot along the way and it's probably going to be way more successful than you think. But if you approach things with the mindset of kind of being open to change, embracing it, take a chance, um, you'll, you'll be surprised at how well that will serve you. So if we were to go back to Casey, uh, at, uh, 22 years old, would you, would, would you be surprised to find where you are today? hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I don't know that I ever had a master plan for my career, but I, I have been true to that idea of taking a chance and being open to new things and trying new things. And so I think that has remained a constant. And so I might not be surprised from that perspective, but um, I would not have ever envisioned the, the twists and turns that have come along my way living your advice. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Casey Coleman, Vice President of Digital Transformation, Global Public Sector at Salesforce. Casey, I, I really want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. Thanks, Eileen. I had a great time. Really appreciate the opportunity. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Your plans? Today it's dinner with the parents at your spot. We gotta come back here. Now, their spot. Or you're on the edge of your seat at the game. Come on, just one time. And it's the one. Woo-hoo! 
Or maybe you're catching the next flight to... Now boarding flight 1850. Oh, that's you. The choice is yours. And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. 